Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnē. Tonight we've got a tale that's part history and part geography, with a dash of exploration, technology and trigonometry thrown in. Land Information New Zealand, or LINS, has just completed one of the largest heritage conservation projects undertaken anywhere in the world. LINS has been digitising valuable historic documents that underpin our land boundaries and land ownership. It's a system of survey records called the Cadastra, or sometimes Cadastra. The early Romans first introduced the idea of a Cadastra for taxing landowners. The Domesday Book, which records the Great Survey of 1086 and is the UK's oldest public record, that was an early Cadastra for England, so that King William the Conqueror could levy taxes. We're very lucky as a country because of our age and because of our geography that we're able to have a very accurate cadaster, which is a system of defining the extent of land. And having an accurate cadaster means that we can support the guarantee of title, which we're very fortunate to have in New Zealand. So it's the confidence of the people that they can have in their ownership, their property rights or easements over other people's land. That's Principal Cadastral Surveyor at Lynn's, Mike Morris. He's in charge of making sure that the New Zealand cadastra is kept up to date. So when you see surveyors out and about, measuring the boundaries between neighbours, for instance, or marking out a new subdivision, all of that information becomes part of the cadastra. Cadastral surveying is a specialised form of surveying, and in New Zealand it dates back to the 1840s. These surveyors in this era weren't just surveyors, they were... They were pioneers, they were adventurers, they would go out for, you know, if not months, almost, you know, possibly a year or more at a time. They would go to places where no European and quite often um, no native people had ever visited before either. The first surveyors in New Zealand usually worked for provinces, until in 1870 the state became responsible for guaranteeing freehold land titles. But by the mid-1870s, only about a third of the land had been adequately triangulated. We'll hear more about that soon. And only 7% or so of the land had accurate boundaries, which meant more and more cases of disputed boundaries and ownership were ending up in court. So, in 1876, the Department of the Surveyor General was created. It's morphed over time into Lynn's and it was tasked with making accurate cadastral maps for selling and taxing land. So back then, what did it take to make the New Zealand cadastra? Mike's got out some early surveyor's equipment to show me. So we've got three pieces of equipment here. One is a vernier theodolite. I'm looking at that because I suspect it's not lightweight, so we have to imagine these surveyors in this unknown country lugging all of this stuff, plus whatever else they needed to 
sleep in at night and yeah, eat during the day and boil up their billy of tea. That's right, all their provisions. And actually that's an interesting find in some of the field books we found. There were provisioning lists. There were good fishing spots, so they managed to get some of their food while they were out there on the, on the job. The theodolite was levelled on top of a tripod. It has a telescope for sighting through and a circular protractor for precisely measuring degrees, minutes in a degree and even seconds in a minute in some cases. All of this enabled those early surveyors to triangulate or take measurements relative to a baseline. And that's the key thing about triangulation. The surveyors aren't taking absolute compass directions. Everything is relative. So that's one bit of kit, but there's another one. That's the physical embodiment of those slightly archaic land measurements, links and chains. There's a Gunter's chain. Every link on that chain is 0.20 metres long. A hundred links is a chain. Uh, A chain is 20.12 metres long. So these chains were... I've never seen it done. Fortunately, never had to use one of those but they would throw them out. It must have been a real art to achieve that, and then they would pull that tight and they would measure. That was the unit of measure for surveying up until 1972. When we metrified, is that Correct, right? yeah. Okay. So what else have we got in this wonderful okay, pile Okay, so of the stuff? next one was the next generation from the Gunter's chain, and it's a long steel band. It's high tensile steel, and that will be 200 metres long. Every 20 metres there will be a... A marking on the chain, and that so that the surveyor, when when doing his measurement, knows which they're up to. The last 20 metres is further split up into 10 centimetre lengths, and then you can see there's a brass, what looks like a ruler, but it's got a spring balance on it as well, and that is used to uh, break down that last 20 centimetres into into centimetres or into fractions of a link uh, when it was, was still imperial. They were very hard to use. You can see there's a sign on there that says, beware of power wires. Well, I learnt that the hard way. Fortunately, not through power wires, but uh, by running the chain out. And I was walking away from where the actual surveyor was. I was an assistant. And uh, lo and behold, I didn't realise, but I was getting lower and an electric fence on the top of the hill was getting closer and closer to the chain. And I didn't realise what had happened at first until I'd had about two or three jolts through my arm and then realised what it was, and I shook it off my hand. Uh, it has a leather strap, which you, which you strap it to your hand. You have to keep the tension on the wire, because if you don't, um, uh, because it's uh, high tensile and sprung, it unravels. And lo and behold, that's what happened when I shook it off my hand. And then you spend another two or three hours trying to unravel this, uh, what we call, used to call a bird's nest. And you were more careful of electric fences after that. Absolutely. All I can say is hats off to those early surveyors, spending what must have often been arduous and lonely months in the absolute back blocks of New Zealand. They may not have been contending with electric fences back in the 1800s, but they were lugging an enormous theodolite, a sturdy tripod, that heavy chain and all of their supplies, either on foot or on pack horse. They were also taking precise measurements and recording each number in notebooks. National Records Manager for Lynn's Alison Midwinter has pulled out a field notebook that belonged to surveyor Llewellyn Smith. It's Smith's Notebook 120 and it's dated 1883 to 1884. 
Page after page is filled with meticulous lines and numbers in his tidy, elegant script. And there's even a lovely line drawing of some mountains in Marlborough next to the Clarence River. You said before they were adventurers, they were measurers, they were also quite artistic. I mean, that's a good drawing of the mountains that they've done down the side of the oh, river. Oh, absolutely, and with that, there are examples elsewhere of watercolours and crayons uh, which are actually included in these books. Pressed flowers, I think there was a four-leaf clover that was found in one. There were other uh, blossoms that were, that were included, and these were the real things. They'd been pressed into the book, not just sketches as well. So little personal tokens. Yeah. Now on this page, apart from the sketches of all the peaks too, there's also a chart with a whole lot of numbers. What are those numbers about? The surveyor here would have been set up on a, on a trig station on a very high point, and he would have observed a number of other points that could be kilometres, well, at that, at that stage, miles away, on other distant peaks, and that was part of the triangulation. Distance measurement now is really easy. Back in the 1800s, it wasn't so easy, so we measured less distances but more angles. So anybody that can remember to, back to their fifth form or, what is it, level one uh, mathematics trigonomic classes will understand that if you've got certain elements in a triangle, you can find out what the other ones are. So if we've got a baseline, one measured line in a triangle, and as long as we accurately measure all the angles, then we can get up the other, the other distances in the triangle as well. So that then uh, anchors in the, the network that we've got. So that whole science of trigonometry underpins those trig points that probably anyone who stood on a high point in New Zealand will be familiar with those. Absolutely, yeah. But they, they didn't used to be there. So if you were one of these early surveyors and you were sent out to this unknown area, so say you were sent up the Clarence River, no one had surveyed it before, what would you have been doing? Any survey, whether it was back then or even now, the first part of your process is to do a reconnoitre of the area. Uh, understand where you can see, even more so in those days than it is now. Now with the, uh, with the use of GPS top technology, you don't need line of sight to be able to survey. In those days, you did need line of sight. So you'd be out there looking at where you could sight lines uh, between open areas, um, measure those directions and then turn off angles to other points. You might decide that, goodness, we've got to spend a month cutting lines through bush to be able to get from one point to another to break down the triangulation network. Do surveyors still use notebooks today? Not always. Now we have what are called total stations, which not only measure angles, but they measure distances as well. Uh, and they reduce them to the horizontal, because all surveying is done on the horizontal, even though we might be uh, measuring um, slope distances. There's also GPS technology now, which isn't actually measuring between two points. It's measuring from a point to a satellite or a number of satellites and back to another point again. Up until, I think it was 1972, it was a requirement for your field notes or field books to be lodged with the, uh, with the plan that you were doing. Since then, it's, it's continued to be a requirement that you must retain those records but you don't have to lodge them with the plan. It's a record, a legal record of what was actually measured in the field. What's shown on a plan which does depict these measurements is derived from those field measurements. Now if it's found out that there's something wrong at a later date by another surveyor on the plan, what you need to go back to is the field book. So they spent all that time in the field, they came back to the office, what happened next? 
that's the bit where they drew up the plans. So you're gesturing at a beautiful map that you've spread out. I'd call it a map, you, you call it a plan. It's a plan because it's the legal representation of the actual field book. That field book is of bits of this plan. So what is this plan of and when was it made? This is 1892. These are original surveys of blocks, uh, so rural blocks in, in the Wairapa. When the surveyors came back in with their field books, what they would do is they would then start their calculations, and their calculations were proving uh, all the measurements taken. Uh, if you start from one point and traverse for several days and go around a block and end up back at the place that you started with, you hope that the mathematics tell you that you are back where you started with. The method which lasted for probably more close to a century was you would plot your coordinates. You've got uh, a line which is 400 chains north of Rangatumau. So every point that was surveyed on this plan would be given a coordinate. So it's just like having a piece of graph paper and you would plot that it would be 450 links north of your previous point and um, 160 links east. And then, so you've got another point, you draw the, join those lines up, and that's how they created these masterpieces. You can also see in there, though, that there's information that's not measured. It's just the surveyor's interpretation of what was there, and it shows relief. It shows where, where bush lines are. It shows an indication of, of ridge lines and valleys, which you can see the difference between where the creeks are. Some of the creeks are just plotted by eye. Uh, you can see streams on this that are actually close to where the roads are, and those are actually uh, measured to. There's traverse lines along those creeks, and those, that information, while not on the plan, is contained in the field book. And that's, again, absolutely critical. If a surveyor comes along 100 years later and wants to do a subdivision of one of these blocks, then the location of the stream at that time might be quite critical. One of the things on this map where there's lots of numbers, I assume that's roads, and then there's another bit that says railway reserve, so those need to be very carefully defined. Very, very carefully defined. Um, particularly when you're looking at managing Crown land, people get very interested in where the rail corridor is or land that's been taken for reserves or for other purposes. Sometimes you actually find yourself coming from the title that you've got now, going right the way back through the historical record to the original plan that says why was this land taken, how was this land taken, where was this land taken, what was the legal basis for it. So these aren't just historical curiosities, these are still living documents. The land record never becomes obsolete. People still use them. We don't add information to it because we have a digital cadaster that records all of the current land titles and everything like that, which is, I might add, world-leading in its accuracy. But for this kind of thing, we go back to the original documentation, the original plans and the original field books. How many of these field books do you have? The ones that were imaged totaled uh, somewhere between fifteen and 16,000. And that's just the North Island and only up to 1972. We have almost every single piece of paper created during the surveying process in this country ever. The original field books, the original plans uh, and all of that documentation, the 
digital record that we have now, Land Online, rests upon an entire pyramid of information in varying degrees of accuracy. That goes right the way back to the original man with the original book sitting on the top of a hill with his pen and his theodolite doing the original survey. I'm sure that that original surveyor would have been pleased to know that these irreplaceable records are not only being treasured, but are still being used. Back in the 1990s, Lynn's created Land Online, which is New Zealand's digital survey and title system. If you buy or sell a property, the title comes from Land Online. A lot of the underpinning cadastral material was digitised, but that early digital information is by today's standards, low resolution, and it's only in black and white. And there's still an ongoing stream of surveyors requiring access to early field notebooks that haven't been scanned. It's easy to see why this would not be a good thing for Notebook 120. This is over 120 years old. So if you take it out, open it out, and scan it, there's sad, crunchy noises and the spine cracks and your pages go all crunchy. And if you do that too many times, you are going to cause irreparable damage to a fragile historical original record. The thing that I sometimes show people with the field books is there's a couple of them that have got sandflies squashed in them. And it's this window onto the life of a surveyor who's out there in the back blocks with sandflies and mozzies buzzing around and has gone, damn you, smack! And it's, it's this connection to our incredibly valuable, beautiful historical past. But now we are actually making that available. We're also making the original, historical, fragile thing be able to be kept as a unique historical fragile thing without falling to bits because we can make the information available. A significant number, but certainly not all, of Lindsay's historic records are being digitised at high resolution as part of a very ambitious digitising project. It includes land titles from South Auckland and field notebooks and plans from parts of the North Island, including some personal surveyors' notebooks from Hawke's Bay. These were made available after all the early records from that district were destroyed in the Napier earthquake and the fire that followed. Kate Fakaronga mai kwe kito tato au hori hori kita reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and in this hour-changing world story, we've been hearing about the early surveying days in New Zealand and what it's taken to create the cadastra that underpins our title to land. Now we're about to hear what it's taken to digitise the early records. But first, a little archiving dogleg. If you've ever read an old newspaper on microfilm at the public library, New Zealand micrographic services will probably have made it. And, by the by, General Manager Gavin Mitchell says that polyester microfilm has a shelf life of 500 years which is pretty extraordinary given how quickly other archiving methods, such as CDs, floppy disks, you name it, go out of date. If there's a major catastrophe, maybe uh, the zombie apocalypse, people will still be able to read their newspapers using the bottom of a Coke bottle in the sun. So it's, it's a great piece of technology that doesn't require technology. But microfilm and planning for the zombie apocalypse are not the only thing Gavin and his team do. 
So we're used to handling old, delicate, fragile or damaged materials and we're able to do that with care and in bulk. So the flatbed scanners, we've got specialised overhead scanners with book cradles in a special facility that we rent at Archives New Zealand. We've got the largest flatbed scanner in the country. It's How big is it? large enough that you could park a small mini on its copy bed. On that we've been able to capture the Treaty of Waitangi for archives and a lot of the um, displays you'll see around the country of the, the treaty have come from that series of scans that we've done. We also use large medium format cameras for overhead copying and other specialist equipment where necessary that gives us very high resolution for smaller formats like negatives, glass plate negatives, colour slides and so on so we can capture them at high resolution so that they can be blown up so to speak so that you can, for a lot of the uh, World War I centenary work we've done, people can read um, unit insignia off collars on pictures taken 100 years ago. Um, so we can capture that level of detail. Gavin says that they've been working on the LINS digitising project for a year, using various pieces of equipment. On this flatbed scanner you can see some very large books. This particular machine has a book cradle underneath and you'll see that the, the book being scanned has about a 5 inch spine, so about 225 millimetres thick. That means as we turn the pages, one side is thin and the other side is thick so the, the book cradle copes with that balance and as the pages turn the paddles under the book cradle balance it up and presents the books in a nice flat format against the glass platen for the scanner to then pick up and that scanner can capture it over 600 pixels per inch. And then further down here this is where all the digital content that's created is manipulated after the fact. So if we need to crop to remove um, background, if we need to make colour adjustments um, to increase legibility, all of that work is done here and we can do that with a lot of scripted work using various tools. We also do um, quality checks and you can see Holly at the moment is currently looking at a document that we've scanned and comparing that against the digital image that we've created and that's one of our LINS documents and that is a certificate of title. The original certificates of title, they're no longer current because you have a modern certificate of title, but the reason people still use them is because they have got their handwritten details of exactly what happened on this property. For example, if there's an easement or if there was a mortgage, and people will go right the way back to go, oh, yes, I do have a right to build that road in that particular area against that title that was originally issued in 1923. But, again, because of the original setup for Land Online, we scanned them all in in black and white, which was fine at the time, but you will have handwritten ink, which is sometimes faded and you can't actually read it. And you will have, if you look at this, it's got a little colour plan. So if the description on the certificate of title is area bounded in red, and you're looking at a black and white picture you're a bit knackered for your information. So we get quite a lot of traffic on the original certificates of title. The font used is fairly small, very dense, and if we didn't capture this at the right resolution, the words would be difficult um, to cover, and these very fine pencil marks 
and ink statements Quite at the faded top ink are very faded. Mm. Uh, very important that we capture these as accurately as we can, and that's what Holly's been checking as we go through these. The paper itself, um, if you have dark blue or some of the early ones, if you have vellum that's got variations in it, if you scan it with standard scanners, you will get shadows, you will get discoloration, you will get the text fading into the paper. It is an incredible pain to actually try and get it legible. You get it scanned to high quality. It's, it's beautiful. And in some cases, quite a few cases actually, it's actually more readable on the scan than it actually is in the original, like like the plans. Now you've opened up something that looks a nightmare to scan. What yep. is it? Uh, this is a provisional register. So it's the provisional registration of Māori land. So we got the provisional registers for North Auckland and South Auckland scanned because these are ones we use slightly less. But if anybody does need to use it, it is, as you can see from the way it's structured... It's got all sorts of bits and pieces stuck in there with sellotape, which you've been moaning about. Yes. Paper is all different sizes. It's completely broken apart at the spine. Yep. And it has colour plans. It has tiny details. It has faded ink. It has crunchy bindings. It has all sorts of issues. And if somebody does request a copy of a provisional registration from Linz, pulling these out and getting them scanned is a nightmare of a thousand different varieties. There's stamps stuck stamps, in there. Yes, stamp duty. Oh, so they genuinely paid for actual, stamp duty with a stamp. Actual physical stamp, actual physical stamp duty, and it's got a hole punched in it to show that it's been um, cancelled. Our team found these quite challenging and were very pleased when we got through them. The thousands of field notebooks from Linz were, by comparison, a walk in the park this is how field books arrived in archival boxes. So there's a box of notebooks, all of which are different sizes? Yes, they come in a variety of different sizes, and that was one of the challenges. And all of them are registered and contain a variety of information, and the beauty of these is that um, some of them, the early ones, had shopping lists for the expedition. So, so oh, many lovely. sacks of flour, so many sacks of hardtack and, and so on. So it's quite delightful to read what was going to go onto the pack horse that was going out with a surveyor for the next month. And some of the surveyors obviously had downtime at camp and produced some beautiful sketches and also some watercolour paintings in their field oh, books. So there were some treats along the way? Absolutely. There were dried flowers. There were photographs of families and friends tucked into the backs of them. So the, the team were constantly pulling out these little delights. In fact, um, Rebecca has one here. Oh, that's a beautiful one. to a beautiful watercolour. Oh, that's totally lovely. I might stick a picture of that on our website yeah. so people can have a look. So this capture station, we did a lot of research to get this just right. This, again, has got a book cradle on it, plates that go up and down, so it balances the, the book to keep the pages flat. And protects that delicate and spine. And protects the delicate spine, and we can put a very even pressure on the page under the glass so that we get as accurate a recording as we can without damaging the, the original document. 
Here we're using um, a DSLR overhead, which gives us the resolution we're looking for at 300 pixels per inch, so the height above the object is quite critical. The lighting here, we've gone with fixed lighting because we've captured in excess of 4,000 images a day across a couple of workstations here, and if we were using strobes, um, there'd be quite a health and safety consideration for the operators. The important thing with the light, though, is two things. One is managing reflection, um, and the second one is getting a, as precise a range of colour in the light as possible. So standard fluorescents are very peaky at different wavelengths, so we've had to get what we call wide CRI or high CRI lighting. CRI is colour range index, so basically it's as representative of sunlight as we can make it. So that way we know that all the colours will be accurately represented in the document. So lift the glass, and then on, and then capture. Wait for the image to appear on that screen, and then on this screen. So we check that it's um, appearing. Then we're on to the next page, check, and check, and so on. And you've just scanned that beautiful little watercolour. I have, you can just see the, the image quality and the actual, the detail that they, they drew in. It was a delight for us to find these in the, um, in the actual field books because we often didn't actually understand what we were capturing because there's lots and lots of little numbers. So if you can imagine this happening for the last 50 weeks, for so up I'm to seven days. I'm trying to imagine days. how many pages that you went through. Do you have a tally? Um, total number of images, so if you think about an image as being a page, between field books, imperial plans, certificates of title, provisional registers, role plans, and all the other um, things we've captured, close on a million images. I think our biggest challenge overall was the amount of data we produced. So across the life of the project, we've generated more than 100 terabytes of data. I'm unaware globally of any other project of this size and nature. So digitising at scale is, is quite an achievement for New Zealand, I think. Alison Midwinter says she's looking forward to having the high-quality scans available online for registered surveyors and, in the cases of the field notebooks, the general public, to use soon. But that's certainly not the end of the original material, which will end up housed at Archives New Zealand. A big thanks to the staff at Linz and New Zealand Micrographic Services for helping with this story, and thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to see the pages and gear we were talking about, head along to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. On Facebook and Twitter, we are RNZ Science. Catch you next week. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.